Uh, please stand now for the, the reading of Scripture. As you can see, uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6 today, verses 9 through 13. It reads, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Thanks for being here with us here at Legacy. Uh, As was just read, you'll see that we are going to be looking at the passage of Scripture that's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And very likely, uh, it might even say that in bold in your Bibles above that passage. Uh, But I agree with a number of commentators who say that it might be more helpful to speak of this passage as the disciples' prayer, because the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching his followers how they ought to pray, and he's giving them a model to use. He doesn't say, pray this, but rather he says, pray then like this. We have here a model, and if we want a robust prayer life, who better to look to than Jesus himself to learn how to have one? And so by following the pattern that is set forth in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, we can give greater attention to the content of our prayers, and we can ensure that we're not falling into the rut of of going to the Lord in prayer with nothing but a list of wants and needs and nothing else. You'll you'll notice as we talk about this morning that I'm going to continue to use words like, like model and pattern when talking about this passage. Because I don't believe that Jesus gave us this prayer that we would repeat it unthinkingly or that it would be only ever recited word for word without variation. Again, he's more so teaching us how to pray than he is teaching us what to pray. We aren't simply to repeat these verses and be done with them. Rather, as Puritan Thomas Brooks rightly said, The Lord's Prayer is given to us as a directory for prayer, a pattern and an example by which we are to regulate our petitions and make other prayers. And so as we go through this prayer together this morning, we're going to consider what each portion of it means and see how they ought to shape and inform our own prayers. So with that, let's begin our time together looking at this with a brief word of prayer. God, we seek wisdom from you this morning, Lord. Help us to rightly understand what is being uh, presented here in the book of Matthew, that we can see what it is that you are teaching us by what it is you taught your disciples, that we would see these important aspects of what our prayers should include, what they should look like. Help us, Lord, to be people of prayer. Help us to see the great necessity, the constant need for communing with God in prayer. And help us also, Lord, to appreciate the tremendous privilege that is ours, that we get to approach the throne of grace 
and take our request before a holy God. Pray now as we look at this, you'd help us to rightly understand, rightly apply this to our lives, and be encouraged to to be more diligent in our own prayer lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin, uh, we start with the words, Our Father. Jesus has said that, pray then like this. And he starts the very first part of this prayer with our Father. Now, as Christians, viewing God as our Heavenly Father is something that we're very familiar with. And it's something that we say often. And and perhaps we are so familiar with this that the full weight of these words is sometimes lost on us. But you have to understand, in the Old Testament, God is rarely ever referred to as Father. It only happens 14 times in the entirety of the Old Testament. And in each case, it is in reference to him being the father of the nation of Israel. It's not used in reference to individuals having God as their father. At the same time, father is almost exclusively how Jesus addresses God 60 times in the Gospels, with maybe one exception, that being a prayer on the cross, All of Jesus' prayers begin this way. And that makes sense. He's he's God the Son, right? Of course he addresses God as Father, but the wonderful thing is, is this is how he instructs us to address God as well. And think of how remarkable that is. The way in which we should approach the thrice holy creator of the universe is as a father, So rather than being under his wrath as our judge, we can, as the Westminster Larger Catechism teaches, draw near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness. As Christians, we can draw near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness. That is a a wonderful summary of our relationship with God. But of course, to have God as your father, you must first have Christ as your savior, of whom the apostle John wrote, but to all who did receive him, that being Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We spoke of of the concept of adoption a moment ago in the service, looking at that, that question and answer from the catechism. That is how we become children of God, and that happens through faith in Christ. And when you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the unmatchable privilege of approaching God not as a fierce judge, but as a loving father. And never forget that, Christian. We can approach God as our father. And it's this fact that shapes all that is to follow in this pattern of prayer, the desire for his glory, the pursuit of obedience, the confidence in bringing our requests to him, the confession, seeking his guidance and rescue from temptation. So we are to go to God in prayer and we are to approach him as he is a a loving, gracious, and kind father. 
Now, having established that we are to approach God as Father, we're reminded that He is our Father in heaven. As we read in Psalm 109, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. And this reminder serves to prevent us from seeing the intimate relationship that we enjoy with God as a license to approach Him flippantly or without reverence that is due His name. He is our heavenly Father. He is still God. And so we enjoy that intimate, loving relationship, and yet we approach Him with with reverence and awe. And since God is our heavenly Father, perfectly sovereign over all things, with all the resources of heaven and earth at His disposal, we can be confident that He not only cares about us, As our Father, He not only cares about the things that we need, but as our Heavenly Father, He is perfectly able to provide all that we need. Now, of course, what we think we need and what God knows that we need are not always synonymous, but we can be sure that He will give us what is needed when it is needed in order for Him to do His work in and through us. And so as we begin looking at this prayer, so as you begin in your own prayers, it's important that you rightly understand who it is that you are addressing. With God as your Father, you can approach Him with confidence that you will be warmly received and attended to as an earthly father delights in speaking with his child. And so we take our request to Him directly. And so let's look at these five requests or these five petitions that Jesus gives that would serve as a model for our own. The first one being, hallowed be your name. Al Mohler pointed out something interesting here in in his sermon on this passage. Many of us, when we're reciting the Lord's Prayer, uh, we naturally, maybe even unthinkingly revert to the 1600s English of the King James, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And now our modern translations swap out the the which for who, and art for is, and, and the thys for yours, but nearly all of them will retain this word hallowed. Now, why is that? Why are we updating the language and then keeping this fairly archaic old English word of hallowed? Well, the reason is, is there really isn't another word in the English language that means quite the same thing as hallowed. It means uh, to be revered, to be set apart, to be magnified as holy. The root word has a relationship with the word holy here, but it's not It's not to be made holy, for for God already is holy. It's to be declared, to be magnified, to be presented, to be revered as holy. But note that this is not simply an acknowledgement of fact. This prayer is not saying, Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. That's a great start, but that's not all that this is saying. This is a request. Our Father in heaven Make your name great. Magnify your name. Make your name holy. And this, of course, is a constant theme in Scripture. Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me 
and let us exalt his name together. First Chronicles 16, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Psalm 69, verses 30 and 31, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. Paul wrote in Romans 1, 5, whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. To hallow the name of God is to revere it, to declare his holy perfection and to make his name known among the nations. It is to ascribe to him the glory that is due him, for he is God. And it is, of course, quite unreasonable to think that we can pray such a thing only with the hope that others will go about the work of magnifying the name of the Lord in word and deed. To pray this in earnest is to request that God would do his work through us to make his name great, to, to draw others to himself with the ultimate goal of furthering his kingdom. And that's exactly what we see here in the next petition. Your kingdom come. While God is on his throne and Christ has defeated sin and death, there is a sense in which we still long for his kingdom to come. After all, we live in a fallen world. We are not yet removed from the presence and the effects of sin. And Satan is not yet fully defeated as he will be in the last day. To pray that God's kingdom would come includes a number of important aspects. We'll look at three of them. One, the coming of God's kingdom uh, to pray to that end is to seek the advancement of his kingdom of grace, as the Westminster Confession puts it. It's to seek the expansion of the gospel and pray that more and more people would be brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus, in teaching his followers about the end of all things, said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That end comes at Christ's return. That's the second aspect we pray for. We pray that Christ would hasten his return. When he will set all things right, well, he will destroy Satan, he'll bring all his followers into eternal glorified fellowship with himself. And when we pray, your kingdom come, the third aspect is that we pray that Satan's reign over this fallen world would come to an end. 1 John 3.8 makes plain that this is what Christ ultimately came to do. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And we pray that this destruction would come and that it would come soon. So as Christians, we recognize that all of redemptive history culminates in Christ's triumphal return and in his final defeat over sin and Satan. And we as Christians are to pray regularly towards that end. 
Let's look now to the, to the next petition that we see here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That God would perform all his holy will on earth as he does in heaven is to pray that we would be as eager to perform what pleases God as the angels are to eternally proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. J.C. Ryle explains that we here pray that God's laws may be obeyed by men as perfectly, readily, and unceasingly as they are by angels in heaven. We ask that those who do not obey his laws now may be taught to obey them, and that those who do obey them may obey them better. Our truest happiness is perfect submission to God's will, and it is the purest love to pray that all mankind may know it, obey it, and submit to it. It's a good summary of what it means to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, we dare not be so foolish as to pray that others would do the will of God, our Father, without first praying earnestly that we ourselves would do so. Do we desire this to be true in the whole world? Well, yes, of of course we do. But we pray first and foremost that this would be true in us. And that is a difficult thing to pray. That's, That's a humbling thing to pray. For we know how often we attempt to hide areas of secret sin and selfish ambition and desires in the corners of our souls, hoping that God will allow us to keep them from him. So let us take the correction that this passage brings and be reminded that we are to be seeking to conform to God's will in every area of life. And this, of course, will greatly impact how we pray. Because as we pray, our chief aim is not to convince God to do our will, but that God would bring about his will through us. Do you approach the throne of grace with that heart attitude? If you desire for your prayers to become more than merely a wish list that you bring to your maker, you need to reorient your petitions, your requests, to focus on God's will and not your own. To pray rightly that God would accomplish his will means that we need to understand what the will of God is. And of course, the will of God is revealed in the word of God. And so we pray that God would make known his will to us as we study scripture, that he would, by his spirit, overcome the weakness and, and the sinfulness which remains in us, that he would give us what is needed to accomplish what he has called us to do in this life. We should pray that God would bring about his will and not merely bring our will and desires before God. But does this mean that we should not bring small requests before God? That we should not make the desires of our heart known to him? That we shouldn't ask him for things that we want or desire or need? Well, I don't think this teaches that at all. Let's 
look now to the next petition that we see. Give us this day our daily bread. To go to God with our prayer request is to acknowledge the truth that every good and perfect gift is from above. So can we be confident in bringing our petitions before God? Yes, because remember how we started. He is our Father. And Jesus made that connection for us later in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. He reminded his followers this, Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And it's very significant that the example here in this prayer is for daily bread. This is asking God for what is needed when it is needed. Just as God provided manna in the wilderness for Israel each day, so too do we rely on God for our sustenance each and every day. You know, living in a place of, of abundance and prosperity can cause us to forget that we are completely dependent on God for every breath, much more so for every meal that we have. We need to recognize that all our blessings come from God, and so we bring those requests to Him rather than presume upon His kindness each morning. Now, does, does the fact that we need to pray for things in God's will mean that we dare not pray for something that we cannot point to chapter and verse four to know for certain that it is God's will. Well, no, I don't think it means that at all. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So if something is weighing on your heart, if you are anxious about anything, pray about it. As the old hymn reminds us, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, of course, we, we do not want to fall in the ditch of the prosperity gospel in which we, we bring selfish requests before God and demand that he meet them. That is not what this is teaching at all. The key to growing in your prayers and ensuring that you do not ask for things wrongly to spend it on your own passions, as James 4 says, is to be in the word of God so that you are continually being conformed to the will of God. So yes, pray for your studying before a test to pay off and that you'll get a good grade. Pray for the job interview to go well. Pray that your sick child will be able to sleep through the night. Pray for God to give you wisdom for a big decision or, or just about anything else that is weighing on your heart and mind. Because as finite creatures, we do not always know what the Creator's will is on a matter. And so we make our requests known to God. And knowing that He is a good and gracious Father, we are content 
that whatever he does provide for us in the end is exactly what was most needed. In bringing our needs before God, we acknowledge that everything that we have comes from him, that we are, are dependent on his grace each and every day, and that our when we do so, our hearts will be more inclined to respond in thanksgiving for all that we have. There is a big difference to go about your day and your week without prayer and just taking all the blessings that God provides and moving on to the next week than there is of bringing those requests before God, seeing him provide again and again as he has in the past and having our hearts spurred towards thankfulness and thanksgiving towards him. There's lots of things that we can pray for. We recognize that not all of them are material. We have many needs that are not material things. Let's look now to the next petition that Jesus gives as a pattern for us to follow. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. When we are instructed to pray that God would forgive us our debts, we are, of course, referring to our debt of sin. We cannot satisfy this great debt on our own, and so it must be forgiven. But let me make clear that, yes, when you are in Christ, all of your past and present and future sins have been, uh, have been forgiven, and you are declared righteous in God's sight. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And if after we responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, we were immediately called up to be with him in glory, that would be the end of it. However, as we remain here in this fallen world, we will continue to struggle against the world and the flesh and the devil. We will sin. Thankfully, our salvation in Christ is secure. We did not earn it, and so we cannot lose it. Jesus is holding on to us and not the other way around, which is great news. As John MacArthur once said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But just because our salvation is secure does not mean that we respond to sin with a shrug. No, out of a heart of obedience and a love for God our Father, we seek to live for Him all the more. And when we fall short, we do not take our sin lightly. Since we have God as our Father, we do not want anything to distance us from Him. And so when we sin, and we all sin, we repent. And we ask God to forgive us our debts. 1 John 1, 9 reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we are to go to God in confession of sin when we pray, to seek forgiveness. Moreover, we are to also forgive our debtors, those who have done some offense against us. Now, to be clear, we do not gain God's forgiveness because we ourselves are forgiving people. That would be to earn 
God's forgiveness. That's not what this is teaching at all. Rather, as followers of Jesus Christ and as sons and daughters of the Most High God, we are to show towards others the same grace that we have been shown. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. John Stott helps make this relationship clear. He writes, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. We want to make sure that we pray not only that we would have God forgive us our debts, but pray that he would make us forgiving people, showing his grace and love and forgiveness towards others. And when we start with a recognition in our prayers of who God is, this in turn sets us to see ourselves rightly as as undeserving recipients of his grace. And so we come to him in confession daily, many times a day, acknowledging our failure to live by his commands, seeking forgiveness, praying for the spirit to work in and through us to develop a heart of steadfast obedience. And of course, there are times when we need to seek forgiveness from God and and when we need to seek it from others. So often we are weak. We fail to fight against sin as we ought. And so we have another petition that we are to regularly bring before God. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, your your first question here might be this. Does God ever lead us into temptation? Does it make sense that we would pray that he would refrain from doing so? Well, James 1.13 is pretty clear on this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The prayer here is not, Lord, do not tempt me. Rather, it's that we would not be allowed to get into situations where we'd be unable to overcome the temptations that we face. Because the fact that God himself does not tempt us does not mean that he always keeps us out of any and every situation where we may have to test the strength of our faith and our commitment to Jesus Christ by saying no to the temptations in this life. Temptation in this sense speaks more to the tests and the trials of life, which God allows us to experience, where we have to actively resist desires, either internal or external, these desires to sin. And such victory over temptation is often what strengthens us in our walk with Christ. So the meaning of this prayer is more in line with, let us not succumb to temptation. Guide us away from situations where we are too weak to resist the temptations of this life. Such a prayer lines up with what we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's what our prayer 
is. We face temptations each and every day, multiple times a day. God allows us to be in situations that test our faith, whereby we are strengthened. As we just saw, the flames shall not hurt you. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's what's taking place in that sanctifying work. While God allows us to be in such situations that test our faith and so strengthens us, makes us more like Christ. Meanwhile, Satan tempts us to sin by presenting desirable bait and hiding the hook. The line, deliver us from evil, is said by many commentators to indicate the evil one. Grammatically, that's what's going on in that phrase, as in Satan, rather than just evil in a general sense. We know that the devil prowls around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so, alert to our danger and our need for divine protection, we go to God in prayer. We pray that God who guides all our steps would keep us from places and situations where we would face great temptation. We pray also that he would deliver us from evil, from the evil one, so that we would not give in to what our flesh so often desires. Pray that God would would keep us from situations where, where temptation is great, and when those temptations do come, that he would enable us to flee from evil, that we would be delivered from it, that we would not fall victim to the snares of the devil. As as Christians, we recognize that to have God as your father is to have Satan as your enemy. And we dare not walk through this life unaware of the great spiritual danger that we are in. We need to be in continuous prayer seeking God's help to avoid and withstand temptation. And so that concludes what is known as the Lord's Prayer. But you might be expecting another line here. Is this really the end of the prayer? Many modern translations do end in verse 13 with deliver us from evil. Meanwhile, many of us are familiar with the more traditional ending of for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, no, we aren't saving that verse for next week's sermon. The simple reason why in the Bible you have in your lap might not have that verse is that the oldest and and the best manuscripts, the ones closest to the original writings of scripture, they don't include that phrase. Now, there's certainly nothing incorrect in that closing statement. It's all true. Some early texts of the church do include that ending, the Didache, which comes to us from about the first or second century, and it mentions this ending. But the reason you might not find it in your Bible is that translators saw the wisest approach was to keep that part of the verse retained in a footnote and not in the main text. Now, despite that textual issue, I am confident that we can certainly affirm that, that the kingdom and the power and the glory do indeed belong to God now and for all eternity, even if those truths come to us from other passages of Scripture. So we've walked through this passage known as the Lord's Prayer, and we've seen the importance of each of these elements of the prayer. 
And I suggest to you again that we are to use this as a model for our own prayers. We should walk through these regularly and then and rephrase them, put them in our own words, insert our own needs and, and, and spiritual desires that we have and use this as a template for our own prayer. I don't suggest that we, we merely recite this and, and call it good enough. However, we should memorize the Lord's Prayer. Not merely to be repeated without variation, but so that we can readily utilize it as a framework for our own prayers. When we do so, we'll find that our prayer lives become richer, deeper, more meaningful. No longer will we feel that we go to God in prayer only when we have an urgent need. Only when we've tried everything that we can do and we finally need a little bit of extra help, then we go to God. No, that's not to be how we pray at all. Nor are we to only come to God and, and give him our daily wish list and say amen and, and go about our business. Rather, our prayer is to be a time of communing with our maker, declaring his worthiness, seeking his glory, desiring his will, confessing our sin, making our requests known to him, and expressing our neediness for his constant provision and protection. So let me encourage you to use this model of prayer. Take intentional time this week to open your Bibles to Matthew 6, verse 9 to 13, and walk through each phrase or verse and rework it into your own prayer, specific to your own needs. Because when we do anything in the manner that Jesus prescribes, we can be sure that we will not be disappointed with the results that we get. So I encourage you to pray. And now I ask that we would close in prayer. Let us then pray using this as a model for us. Oh God, our, our gracious and heavenly, loving, kind Father, may your name be magnified in and through us so that all around us would be aware of your majesty, your perfection, your holiness. We pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth in this nation and throughout the world. That those who are outside of saving relationship with Jesus would be convicted of their sin, persuaded by the spirit of the truth of the gospel. And that in your perfect timing, that Christ would hasten his return in power and in glory. Help us, Lord, to have the eagerness to do your will that we ought to have. May we be as committed to do your will as the angels in heaven are, always doing what brings you glory. Please, Lord, we pray that you would continue to provide for our needs as you have so graciously done in the past. We recognize how often we take your providence for granted, and we ask that you would draw our hearts to seek out everything by your hand. For out, without your loving kindness, we would have no good thing. May we not seek after that which does not ultimately serve to make us more like Jesus, or that does not bring you glory. Instead, Lord, let us hunger and thirst for righteousness and be content with what is needed to sustain us in your service. Forgive us, Lord, as we recognize just how often we fall short of these things that we pray for. We do not live as we ought. And so we do not pray as we ought. 
Forgive us for not regarding you and your holiness, for having too high an estimation of our own merits, for failing to do what you command and doing that which you forbid. Strengthen us against our weakness, Lord. Help us to be as gracious towards others as you are to us. We ask that you'd have mercy on us, Lord. We pray that because we are weak and often foolish of heart, that in your pity, you would guide us away from temptation so that we might not sin against you. When temptation comes, Lord, cause our hearts to flee from sin and run to you. Deliver us from evil, either in our own hearts or encountered out in the world. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, by whom we are able to call you Father and have confidence in you hearing our prayers. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, as we approach the Lord's table once again this week, I just encourage you just to take some reflection on your own heart. As we've we've looked and studied on what what is it, what is it to pray? An example to pray? How how our Lord taught us to pray? It's it's a a prayer that's really fully dependent on the work of God. So we, we are longing for to see His glory. We're longing to see His name magnified. We're longing to see perfect obedience to Him in ourselves and around us, just like it is in heaven. We're, we're desperate for good things from His hand, for our, our daily sustenance, for our daily walk. We know that we are dependent on him if we are going to resist the evil one. So really, it's, just, it's a walkthrough. It's just a picture of, of the Christian life, which is a life of dependence. You know, we can celebrate individualism and all those kind of things um, in some other place. You know, here in, in, in Scripture, we celebrate dependence on someone else. Because that is what it is to be a Christian, is to be dependent on Christ in all things. So if that, if that is the, the path you are walking, if you are trusting in Christ, leaning on Him, walking in obedience, which in our, this, in our age, in this world, until, until we are glorified, does not mean walking in perfection, but walking in obedience. And when we fail, repenting turning once again to the grace of God. If, if that is true of you, then I invite you to, to come in just a moment, to come and to grab up the elements as this, this physical reminder of our continual dependence on Christ, that, that it is His work, His sacrifice, His broken body, His shed blood. That is our claim. That is our surety. That is our foundation. That is how we can approach God as Father, confident that we will receive from him good things because Christ has earned those all for us and they are ours by faith. So I invite you to come and in just a moment we will take them together. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you 
for the kindness that you have given us in your word, for the many kindnesses in your word. That you don't leave us lost and wandering and ignorant what you desire from us or what is even good for us, but you prescribe them for us. You give us the path. You show us the way. Father, I pray that as we take this bread and this drink that we would we would be physically acting out something that is spiritually true of us already, that we are clinging and we are counting on the righteousness and the obedience and the sacrifice of Christ as our own by faith. Help us to walk ever in greater obedience and dependence on Him. We want to be an obedient, faithful people. Use this as a means of grace to strengthen our faith, strengthen our resolve, strengthen our love for our Savior. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read in Matthew chapter 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took of a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's why we cry out together in the model prayer we were given, Thy kingdom come. We want to see His kingdom in more tangible ways around us. We know that He is right now ruling, victorious, sitting at the right hand of the Father. But yet we have not yet joined in feast with our Savior. There is still something that we are waiting for, we are desperate for. Every time we see evil in this land, and if you turn on your TV or open up your favorite app, you you see evil is just prevalent everywhere. Not even trying to hide it anymore. People used to have enough shame to hide the evil that was in their hearts, but now it is celebrated increasingly. When we see that, it should drive within us, Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come to banish this evil, to overcome, destroy it, free this earth from the corruption of sin, to free our own bodies from the corruption of sin that wars against us. As we look forward so eagerly to that day, be able to drink when the, we drink of the cup with our Savior in His presence when all things have been finished.